0: It's been a minute since I stood in this pulpit. I think I remember how this goes. For the past three months, as many of you know, I have been on sabbatical. And there is a lot to share from that experience. I'm not going to do it all this morning. It was wonderful. It was hard. It was restful. It was exhausting. And it was everything in between. I I am someone who spends most of my life as a professional religious person. It's a weird thing. I get paid to pray and to preach and to think about the Bible. So for somebody like me, the real opportunity of three months of sabbatical is to step away from the paycheck part of my religiosity and remember what my actual lived, real spiritual life looks like. It's it's a Sabbath, right? That's actually where the word sabbatical comes from, from this Hebrew word Sabbath or Shabbat. It's a verb that just means to stop you stop, and rest is sort of what has, uh, what has kind of become associated with that word. And there's this robust tra- tradition in Judaism that serves to safeguard this day of rest. Every seven days, observing the Sabbath is central to Jewish identity to this day, and Christians have carried over some of that spirit in our own traditions around Sunday, around a day of worship and rest. And we hear an, an echo of that, I think of it almost as sort of like a safeguarding tradition In the prophet Isaiah this morning, Isaiah says, if you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, right? He he thinks it's something that is in danger of being trampled. If you refrain, he says, from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on God's holy day, if you honor it, not going your own ways, not serving your own interests, not pursuing your own affairs, then he says, you shall take delight in the Lord and God will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. And there's an unstated corollary there too, which is that if you don't do this, if you trample on the Sabbath, woe betide you, we're not, uh, we're, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna speak about what happens if you mess it up. And so then Jesus encounters on, an, on a different Sabbath day, Jesus encounters this woman with a spinal ailment and he sets her free. The narrator says this is a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. And in one way, it's almost like she's a little bit too perfect of a symbol. Like it's just a little bit on the nose for me. Jesus diagnoses her condition as being bound by Satan. That's consistent with how physical ailments were understood in the first century. Nowadays, a doctor would probably diagnose her as suffering from an orthopedic condition. One scholar has suggested this is likely ankylosing spondylitis. I had to practice that. Somebody out there knows what that means. Not I. Whatever her condition, whatever is going on for this woman, when Jesus mentions Satan in connection to it, I think it's important to note that Jesus is not suggesting that this woman is possessed, right? Jesus sees that she's suffering, and he identifies her suffering as the evil in this situation, not the woman herself. He turns to her, and he says simply, Woman, you are set free. You are set free from your ailment. Easy as that. And she stands up. She stands all the way up for the first time in a long time. And the text says she begins to praise God. I suspect that some of you know a little bit what something like this feels like when the ailment under which you've been suffering, maybe for years, is removed. When you have known nothing but pain, and suddenly you are no longer in pain, you better believe you start praising God. So a healing miracle is worked in the presence of this little community of worshipers, and this woman's life is made better. She is set free. As far as Jesus is concerned, right, this is what Sabbath is for. He's read his Isaiah. He knows the importance of the day. And as far as he is concerned, this woman is now the living embodiment of what Sabbath means for Jesus. Sabbath is about healing. Sabbath is about freedom. And it pisses some people off At least the leader of the synagogue, who the text says is indignant. It's a great Greek word. He is indignant. I don't know what's going on out there. Of course he is, right? Because the Sabbath, this synagogue leader knows, the Sabbath is not just about healing and wholeness and all the warm fuzzies. Sabbath is about power. Religion is about power. Jesus' miraculous healing threatens to upend the whole apple cart, this little religious fiefdom that this particular synagogue leader has set up for himself and for his cronies. He says there are six days of the week on which work can be done. He's not a bad guy. He's like, yeah, you can come and be healed. Just do it on my terms, right? Come to my synagogue any other day of the week, and you can be healed, not on the Sabbath. He says you can't do work on the Sabbath, and he's not wrong, right? This is the strict teaching of Torah, this Sabbath question, what What constitutes work what can and can't you do on the sabbath that was a live debate among observant jews in the first century during the time that jesus is living hebrew scripture is actually pretty clear about what it means to keep the sabbath holy and the strictest interpretation of jewish law with which this leader is clearly aligning himself is that healing constitutes work and any kind of work is prohibited from sundown on friday to sundown on saturday that is the clear obvious, literal reading of the text, and any activity that departs from the clear reading of scripture is slippery, progressive relativism that contravenes the clear teachings of God. You see where I'm going with this, don't you? Incidentally, the the position that Jesus lays out in in contradiction to this guy, that the the preservation of human life always takes precedent over any strict Sabbath observation, that is actually the principle that will win out in this great Jewish debate. To this day, it's it's a principle called pikuach nefesh. It's the principle that guides observant Jews to this day. According to this principle, you can only keep the Sabbath if you're alive to do it. Dead people don't keep Sabbath. So the the Jewish principle is acts of healing always take precedence, right? They have to happen on the Sabbath in order for the Sabbath to be properly observed by living people. That principle was established by the rabbis who put together the Mishnah. This story from Luke is actually a really important uh, historical document for Jewish scholars actually because it gives us this little window into the time before that teaching is codified but when the debate is obviously going on. And for Christians, it's a really—it's kind of a beautiful window into Jesus the Jewish rabbi, right? Just how Jewish this guy is, as he engages in a live Jewish debate, one of the central questions of his time. The whole New Testament, incidentally, is basically a Jewish text. Um, and we, we whitewash it when we think that this is about Christianity somehow. No, 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 all of this is about Judaism. And this is the debate that he's engaging. That's a sideline, that's a historical question, this first century debate about Sabbath keeping. And I gotta tell you, all week long, I have not been able to stop thinking about this synagogue leader, this indignant synagogue leader. He says, there are six days on which healing can happen. Come any other day and be healed. But essentially, he says, don't bother me on my Sabbath day. right? Don't interrupt me when I'm doing my job. Don't sully the sacredness of my synagogue, woman, with your messy ailments and your bent over back. And at one level, like I recognize this guy. I grew up around guys like this. and let's be honest, it tends to be men who get so obsessed with their sacred texts and getting the rules right that they're willing, willing to run roughshod over hurting people. And like many of you, I suspect, I've I've spent a lot of my life putting distance between myself and this guy who likes to pound and pontificate his scripture. I allied myself with the more progressive, more compassionate, less literal strains of my religious tradition in order to avoid this guy and everything he stands for. The bigoted way he tries to shame Jesus and the misogyny and the patriarchy. control over women's bodies that he represents. I mean, I don't want to put too fine a, a point on it, but one way that we could read this story from Luke is a kind of a, almost a kind of an allegory of the ways in which men have tried to police women's bodies since time immemorial, and then the way in which Jesus intervenes and interrupts that system, throws over and indicts a system based on misogyny and control. If there were ever a text for the times we live in, this could be that text. So maybe, like me, you find something a little bit uncomfortably familiar in the, in the voice of this indignant synagogue leader who essentially says, a woman's bodily autonomy ends where a religious tradition lays down a rule, which cannot be contravened. If that doesn't feel contemporary to you, I don't know what to say. As far as I have run from this guy, from this literalistic teaching, from this particular synagogue built on power and coercion and control, I mean, he's, (laughs) I have a lot of sympathy for this guy in a weird way. He's like me, he's a professional religious person. His job is to curate a tradition and help people find their way into it. I mean, I I sometimes call myself, like I'm just a park ranger for religion, right? Like I'm here like policing the park and kind of helping people navigate their way in this weird national wildlife park we call Christianity. That's what this guy is doing, right? And then when somebody comes at him with some very different ideas about what his park should be for, he gets angry. I mean, like I have been there, I've done that. This guy scares me because he looks an awful lot like the guy I see in the mirror every morning. My experience has been that we progressives are just as prone to compassionless posturing and self-righteous control as our conservative siblings are. There's a warning here. This is a warning here for me. Maybe you too. I think we would do well to heed it. And I also want to be really careful about foregrounding the men in this story as many scholars and commentators have done, foregrounding the theological debate about texts between two dudes at the expense of the real point, I think, of the story, which is that a daughter of Abraham is healed and she goes home praising the one who made her. Before Jesus performs a single miracle, he offers one really important thing to this woman. We see it in verse 12. I think it's maybe the, it's where the real healing, I think, happens in this story. Before he lays a hand on her, Luke says, Jesus saw her. When Jesus saw her, Luke says, he called her. Now, we could read that as like he calls her over, right? Come over here. I think Luke means us to hear the deeper, the deeper meaning there. Jesus sees her and he calls her. He gives her a job. Only then. Does he lay hands on her and he doesn't say anything like you know by the power vested in me by almighty god i jesus zap you of your ailment and you are healed because of my magical powers right actually there's a way of reading the story in which the woman heals herself she's got the power of god in her all jesus does is lay his hand on her and say hey you know what just happened to you 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 are set free he is incidental in a certain kind of way to everything that happens this woman is filled with power because she's been seen because jesus calls her he does not reduce her to a diagnosis he doesn't see her as the crippled woman who's been hanging out in the corner right no she is a fully enfranchised daughter of abraham that's what he calls her and she sets herself free she stands up straight again and that is what an experience of freedom feels like that's when this woman begins to praise her god with a loud voice that I think probably makes a lot of the men in that room very uncomfortable. And maybe they should be uncomfortable because what Jesus has just done is indicted this whole system of power and coercion and control. And this daughter of Abraham knows it. And she is singing her praise song to Jesus. For the first time in a long time, she experiences freedom not as an intellectual concept. She experiences freedom as a physical sensation coursing through her body. The body God made perfect and beautiful and whole long before Jesus came along. This woman was always free in God's eyes, regardless of the condition of her spine. In the presence of her Lord and Master, finally, she is reminded of who she was always meant to be. She gets to remember the person she really is. This is her sabbatical. I mean, this is actually what the Sabbath means. The single most important thing that happened to me on my sabbatical was that I remembered what freedom feels like. It's not an idea. It's a physical sensation. I got to tell you that is an exhilarating feeling. There is there's nothing more healing than feeling that kind of freedom coursing through you. And I got to tell you that is the whole point of the of, of church. That's what this building was created to do. The whole reason that you pulled yourself out of bed this morning and showed up for this service at 10 o'clock in the morning. It's the only reason that we sing these hymns and pray these prayers and tell these stories in the first place. It's all about healing, which is another way of saying it's all about freedom. It's all about setting people free. Freedom is the whole point of religion. Paul talks about this in Galatians, right? He says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And the hard truth for some of us is that we have to let go of some of our very firmly fixed ideas of what right and wrong and moral and immoral and prudent and imprudent and sacred and profane look like in order to step into the healing that Jesus is offering us. Healing is never about power. Healing is never about control. But healing is the truest kind of Sabbath there is. And we all need to be healed. I mean, my sense is probably. Whether you know it or not, that's what got you into this room today. You've been carrying something around with you, I have too, we all have. We're going to keep carrying stuff around with us. We come into a space like this to lay it down if just for a second, to see if someone will see us, to see if somebody's going to call us, to see if somebody's going to lay a hand on us and say, my dear, you're free, you're free. At the end of this, service, well, at communion, we're gonna open the little um, healing stations in the chapel next door. If you are carrying something around with you and you just need to sit for a moment, if you wanna pray with somebody, there will be some folks there. Greg and Elaine Harris are gonna be there. They're some of the holiest people I know. I'm gonna be there. We're there to pray with you. But like, we can't make this happen for you, right? Like, I am, a, I am a synagogue leader. The best thing I can do is get out of the way and let Jesus do his thing. Because Jesus is here and he is ready to do his thing. His thing is always healing. His thing is always freedom. So if you need it, this is the right place for you to be, all of us, sons and daughters of Abraham, who long to experience in our bodies what it feels like to be free. Happy Sabbath, my friends.